Well, good morning, Bram. Glad that you're here this morning as we finish off our series in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, the old part of the Bible. A couple months ago, our finance guy called us up, my wife and I, to have us come in to update us on our finances. Now, the meeting didn't last very long because there's not much updating on, you know, $149.33 of, uh, you know, our uh, investment in the stock market and retirement, you know, so it was a pretty brief meeting, but he knows our age. And because he knows our age, he wanted to have us come in and he wanted us to be thinking ahead towards retirement and he wanted us to have things in place. And so he sent us away with a list of items that we were to research and then come back and have another meeting with him. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, in a sense, is doing the same thing. He is asking his readers to consider where they are at in their life right now. In this series called Under the Sun, Solomon gives us a contemplative reflection of our life from the womb, where we start, all the way to the tomb, where we end. This is necessary for us especially as Americans, since a fast-paced world provides little time for us to contemplate where we are in life or even to think ahead. Most of us do not consider the major questions in our life until we are really towards the end. You know, I've said it before that we spend more time planning our week's vacation than we do planning our eternity. You ever thought about that? But those of us in the room who have been given God's word, particularly as it's recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes, possess this unmatched treasure that makes us wise beyond the world. Matter of fact, the psalmist in Psalm 119 verse 99 says this, I have more insight than all my teachers. Why? For I meditate on your statutes. I meditate, God, on your word. God's wisdom that he imparts to us through his word, the Bible, he says is greater than all the classes, all the other books that he has read in life, that it's above And so up to this point, over the last three weeks, what have we learned from Solomon in Ecclesiastes? Well, we learned that in chapter one, he starts out and he comes to us as a teacher. Now, a teacher is one who accumulates all kinds of information and then passes it on to their students. But Solomon tells us that in order for him to be a teacher, he first needed to be a student. He needed to experience life so that he could contemplate it and then bring it to us. And so he moves from this teacher, really searcher, to this student, but he ends up being this skeptic. 
He's starting to realize as he's pursuing life that it's leaving him short. It's leaving him empty. It's not satisfying him. And so as we continue in our series, he then tells us in later chapters that he gave into all his desires to find out what would satisfy him. He gave himself to pleasure, which was to wine and folly, recklessness, to laughter, but it was empty. He gave himself to projects. He built homes that said he built vineyards. He built his own parks. I mean, how many of us go out and say, oh, I think I'll build a park today. You know, we don't do that. These reservoirs, all these things, but projects didn't fulfill him. So then he moved on from that. And he looked at the whole idea of performance. Like if I just work hard and I work long hours, but he says it's folly, all this labor. What does it gain me under the sun. But then he said, decided, hey, I'm just going to accumulate products. So he accumulated, it says in Ecclesiastes, male and female servants, which in those days, those people were considered products, not people. He got a harem. He gathered gold and silver. He gathered all kinds of herds of sheep and goat and horses, greater than anyone else. But yet it didn't satisfy so he looked elsewhere and he went into philosophy, study, and he studied and he studied, but he recognized that knowledge as well. Doesn't cut it. And he even went to areas that we go to at times, a plethora of food to where it says in second Kings that on a daily basis at the King's table, he would entertain and feed 10 to 20,000 people, all kinds of the richness of foods. And so he went out as a student and said, I am going to experience every nook and cranny of life for you to seek what will fulfill. And then in Ecclesiastes, he brings us what he has learned. And now he comes to us as this incredible teacher. And he realizes that he comes up short can't figure it all out. In Ecclesiastes 8.17, he says this, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun in this life. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And so Solomon recognizes that there's nothing that's fulfilling. There's nothing that's being gained under the sun. There's nothing that, hey, after I have this experience or buy this, you know, a thousand and one chariot to add to my other chariots, it, it doesn't sustain my heart. It doesn't fulfill me in the long run. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity and what Solomon is wrestling with, with here. And I quoted it the first Sunday of this series. 
He said, if I find a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So Solomon says, hey, he has set eternity in the human heart. There's this recognition that really nothing here is going to satisfy us ultimately, but we were created for something greater and longer. And I believe it's the forever afterwards. And so Solomon gets to the end of all this experience And now he's laying it out. And in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14, he comes to this conclusion. And he starts with this conclusion by saying he's going to give us direction from the teacher, from the searcher. We read in Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 11, not only was the teacher wise, he's talking about himself now, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs, which he just wrote about all this about his search and seeking and what's meaningful, what's not. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. And so Solomon is saying, listen, what I'm giving you is like goads. How many people have used that word this week? I mean, like, I mean, we just don't use that word often. Like, what does it mean, right? Goad means to provoke or annoy someone so as to stimulate some action or reaction. So what he is saying here is, listen, I have brought you all these Proverbs, all this writing, all this experience, all this teaching, Because I want to provoke you. I want to annoy you. And people are annoyed by Ecclesiastes. All kinds of people are trying to figure it out. What's he getting at here? Why? Because he wants us to move to some reaction or to an action. He wants us to come to a contemplation of our own life and saying, yeah, you know what I have been running after day in and day out and day in and day out thinking that at some point the carrot's going to show up or I'm going to eat the carrot isn't going to happen. It's meaningless. I'm, as he says, I'm chasing after the wind. And he's trying to get us to react, to think about it, to actually pause and evaluate our life pursuits. And what is it we think brings meaningfulness or joy or peace or satisfaction? And so he comes to us and he wants to give us direction as a teacher. But secondly, as we continue to read towards the end of the chapter, he's also wanting to bring this danger for his son. So it gets more personal here because Rehoboam, his son, is going to be taking over kingship. And so he says to his son in Ecclesiastes 12, 12, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, to this writing he brings. Because he says, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And so he's cautioning his son. He's saying, hey, be careful. 
not to look farther than what is written right here, what God has given you for instruction, for life, and what matters. And that's the challenge today. I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of help books, right? Self-help books. It's a $13 billion industry a year. And I'm not saying that, hey, they're all bad. I mean, yes, I could be more organized. I mean, my wife knows that, you know, I could be more organized. But if I'm going to believe that, man, once I get organized, which I don't think like ever happens, but once I get organized, I will have this peace, this contentment, this true satisfaction, this meaning of life. My identity will be figured out. Oh, this is who I am. You know, all that kind of stuff. No, I mean, it's good for an area, but this whole idea that us as the created ones define what brings us meaning or purpose or what brings us joy, contentment, or what will satisfy us. Us as the created ones are not the ones to define that. The creator, God, is the one who defines what brings true meaning and purpose and satisfaction in our lives. God was trying to remind the nation of Israel of this over and over and over again, because often they would just go off, leave God, and they wanted to define life for themselves and what would satisfy. And so they pursued other gods and and pleasures as Solomon teaches here. But in Jeremiah chapter 18, four, God gives this picture of the potter's house and this picture that, hey, he ultimately is the potter and he says, we are the clay. And he says, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, the nation of Israel. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. You see, he is the creator. And so as the creator, He knows what is best, what will bring a win in our lives. There's a recent movie called Ford vs. Ferrari. It was back in the early 60s when Ford was trying to gain some momentum in the auto market. And there was this idea that, hey, if we could get on the national scale of being the fastest and the best, our product would go up, our sales would go up. And so they decided to take on Ferrari in the 24-hour Le Mans, the, the famous race Le Mans. And so in order to win, they hired Carol Shelby, who was at that time and still living today, is an incredible automaker of performance engines and cars, an incredible engineer. And so they hired him to design the car, to design who is going to race, and to beat Ferrari. But the first time out, it was a debacle. It was embarrassing. And so I'm going to show you a clip where Carol Shelby is sitting before Ford II, who is now owner of the company. And Ford II is saying, Why shouldn't I fire you and everybody involved in this debacle? Because it was a mess. And Shelby comes back 
And he says, we can't win by committee. And so you're going to have to trust me. So let's watch this clip. You might be smart enough to start trusting me. I mean, I think that's, that's God's comment to us every day. Because in that clip, did you get it? He says, hey, we're not going to win race by committee here. Everybody put in their ideas. And that's the challenge today in our world. Is that everybody thinks that, hey, I know how to run my life. I know how to run this world. I know what's going on. But we're the creation. We're not the creator. Shelby was the creator of the car that ended up beating, eventually, Ferrari. But yet everybody else wanted to run things. Said, no, it should be like this and that and everything else. He's like, no, this is how it should be. Because I created it to be this way. And we get in the way of God. And so Solomon brings this warning, this danger warning to his son. Hey, be careful to not leave this for what the world says is going to satisfy. And so he gives this direction to us at the end of Ecclesiastes. This goad, he wants to annoy us and get us to think and stop and react to what he has said to us. He gives this danger to his son. Hey, don't leave this for the thousands of other self-help books out there. And then lastly, he says, because here's the deal. Here's the bottom line. Finally, number three, here's the duty of every person. And he says this. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. <laughs> really? That's it? God. Huh? But what does it mean to fear God? There is this tinge of like, ooh, I'm afraid. Man, he's God. We've all been in somebody's position or presence who we had this little bit like, I'm afraid a little bit. I certainly had it as I was a kid when I knew I did something wrong and walked for dad. I'm like, <laughs> right. But what Solomon is telling us here though, is what the fear of God truly is, is this deep reverence, this deep respect for who God is as the creator, as the one who desires us to have life and life to the full. And then he moves from that deep reverence, that deep respect. And he says, part of our deep respect then comes out of us following his commandments, believing that if we follow the roadmap that he has given us, we will have life and life to the full. We will be satisfied, content. We will have this peace in our lives. In 1 Peter 1, 15, 16, Peter says, but just as he, God, who is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because he is holy. He calls us to holiness. Why? Because he knows it's good for his creation. He knows that his creation will be satisfied. They'll be filled with joy and peace. Shame and guilt will not be part of their lives. In Psalm 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto your feet. It's a light unto your path. 
It's like a flashlight in this dark world so that we know how to live and where to go. And it satisfies us. But as people, we have this struggle with this proper fear of God, this deep respect, this reverence. Last week, uh, my wife and I just got back from vacation and that. And so Sunday morning, we ended up going to another church just to hang out and to experience it and then all that. And the individual was giving their testimony, their life story. And they were talking about recovery and what God had done in their lives. And they were talking about the fifth, sixth, and seventh step. And in the fifth step, the fifth step is where you take everything that you have written that you have done wrong or done to somebody else in the fourth step, and you go before another person and you confess it. You like lay it out. And so he said he went to his sponsor and he had pages of things written out that he did against, you know, God, against himself, against other people. And they went through all of this. And after a few hours, his sponsor got up and he said, now I'm going to leave the room. And I want you to kneel on the floor with both knees and ask forgiveness of God. And this guy's sitting on the couch. And he said, I said in my head, there's no way. I'm getting on the floor. I'm staying on the couch. You see what's already going on, right? This fight of who's going to be God here. What's it going to look like here? And so the sponsor left the room and he's sitting at the couch and he's trying to pray this prayer that he's supposed to pray in the sixth step from the sixth step. And he can't do it. He can't do it. And he's, and this word came to him from God, and it was the word willingness. Are you willing? Are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to recognize that there is a God and you are not him? And so he said he got up and he took a knee, just one knee. He was, he's, he's, this wrestling continued like, hey, I'm not, I'm not going down on two. I'll give you one. And isn't that us though? Isn't it us? Come on, it's us. We're like, I'm going to hold on. Until finally, willingness. You know, and he went down to two. And he prayed that prayer. And he said, God just took all this stuff. All my past, all those pages of wrong. And just cleared it out. Boom. And there was this peace that flooded over him. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says that for anything to be worthwhile, it must be connected to the living, vital relationship with our creator, our sustainer, and our giver of life. And that is God. Everything he else, everything else he says, it, it's vanity. It's this, this chasing after the wind under the sun, our life. John Bacon was once a famous sculptor. He left this inscription on his tomb in Westminster Abbey. What I was as an artist seemed of some importance to me while I lived. But what I was as a believer in Jesus Christ 
is the only thing of importance to me now. (laughs) The guy's dead. This is on his tomb. What I was as an artist seemed of some importance to me while I lived. But what I was as a believer in Jesus Christ is the only thing of importance to me now. How much emphasis emphasis do we put on these pursuits in life or what we think is going to satisfy? Or once I get there, once I get there, once it's a four-bedroom home, then I'll be satisfied. Or that job or location or whatever, right? But Solomon says there's nothing gained. There's nothing that residually stays with us to give us the peace, the joy, the contentment that we long for. And then it can only be found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so two questions I want to leave with you this morning to contemplate. I want to goad you, I guess, annoy you. What are you pursuing in life apart from God, believing it will fulfill you? What are you pursuing in life apart from God that you believe, and boy, that's going to fulfill me. And then secondly, when was the last time that you knelt on both knees before God and that you asked forgiveness? And that you acknowledged that he is God and you are not. I invite you to wrestle with those two questions. And I invite you to start your day every day on both knees. And to say, there is a God and I am not him. Let's pray. Father God, your word is clear. Your word is relevant for our day today because we are all pursuing daily that which will satisfy. But yet you defined for us as the creator what will satisfy us, the creation. And it is finding and starting with life in you. and allowing our perspective to be shaped by you and our pursuits to be ordered by you. And so I pray favor over each one today that you would be with us, speak to our hearts, and that you would bring us and help us to land on what is true. In your holy name, amen.